This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so let's understand exactly what we heard from the Fed today. We have sort of a smorgasbord of sorts, Carol, of testimony from Jay Powell, as well as the Fed minutes. Obviously, the comments from Jay Powell, a little bit more up to date because Mm -hmm. those Fed minutes, they go back to that meeting a few weeks back. Tendai Kapfizi is chief economist for Lending Tree. He joins us on the phone from North Carolina. Tendai, great to have you with us. Nice to uh, hear your voice. Yeah, glad to be here. I'm uh, actually in New York, though. Oh, well, there you go. Well, you're right around the corner. Um, So tell us what you heard, especially from Jay Powell today, because his comments tended to have, it seemed to have the most impact on the markets out there. Uh, Well, it seems like it's uh, Christmas in July, right? The uh, Fed (laughs) basically almost promised uh, a rate cut at the end of this month. Um, I, I think he was uh, probably more dovish than I expected. Uh, so it looks like it's a lock on the rate cut. Well, that's interesting too, and I do wonder how much of you know the Fed trying to kind of manage markets, and you know how much disappointment if he kind of had gone in the other direction. Do you think that dovish tone is warranted, considering the economic data points that are out there? Um, I do not. I think for me, one of the more surprising things he said was when he was asked if uh, Friday's job number had affected his thinking. And he said, not at all, or something to that effect. I thought they were data dependent. Uh, uh, Yeah, exactly, right? Um, So, you know, it's surprising to me that, uh, you know, they say they're data dependent, and uh, I think you would, uh, many people would judge that the payroll report is one of the more important pieces of data. Um, While certainly you don't ever want to react to one single data point uh, to suggest that it had no influence, uh, to me, was very surprising. And so as you think about some of the other data that they are looking at as they think about getting together later this month, what else are you looking for to give you an indication? And what are Jay Powell and his team uh, looking at most closely? Um, I think, you know, between now and the Fed meeting, we're going to get data on almost every part of the economy. Um, I think the weaker parts of the economy have been uh, business confidence. Uh, you look at the ISM surveys um, and also uh, CapEx uh, business spending. Uh, so I think that's where the weakness in the economy is, is coming from. Uh, inflation allows them the room uh, to make a cut. So I think if you were biased towards a cut, you could certainly talk yourself into a cut. Where I kind of differ is that I don't think that the weakness that we're seeing in the economy has anything to do with monetary policy. So I don't Mm -hmm. think it can be fixed by monetary policy. So I think we're going to get a rate cut and it's not going to do anything for the economy. Uh, It'll probably help, you know, some of the financial parts of the economy. But in terms of real growth, I don't think the impact will be meaningful at all. What would have an impact? Uh, I think the challenges the economy are facing are related to uh, some structural issues, uh, trade negotiations, just this uh, level of uncertainty around, you know, where you can source your, your, your supply chain, right? 
Um, if you look at measures of business confidence, you see that they've been trending downwards pretty much since trade tensions kind of started getting more and more intense. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got a truce uh, the other weekend, uh, but that certainly doesn't look like we're moving towards resolution, right? It seems that, okay, maybe things are not going to get worse. And if you're trying to figure out long-term planning as to where am I sourcing my materials, uh, how am I signing contracts, how am I going to employ people, and how am I going to estimate the growth for my company, it's hard to do with all this uncertainty around what things are ultimately going to cost, whether they have tariffs on them or not. Uh, So I think the only thing that's going to take care of the weakness in the economy is removing some of these uh, challenges, which are... Um, you know, it seems more policy-based, uh, you know, not monetary policy, but uh, uh, other broader economic policy. And you're – go ahead. Well, go ahead, Jason. No, go ahead. I was going to say, because one of the things that stuck, struck me in your notes, and you said we risk run, heading down the path of Europe and Japan, who in failing to make the needed structural changes have driven their monetary policy to the point of being inept. And you see the United States on the same path, same trajectory. Um, yeah, so I, I think actions like this kind of increase that risk, right? Um, you know, you don't wake up one morning and just suddenly find that, oh, we're cutting rates and the economy is not reacting. Uh, you kind of get there, uh, you know, little by little. Uh, you know, I, I kind of I like the song you guys were playing, the first uh, cut is the deepest. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I guess it's a, another one would be, you know, death by a, a thousand cuts, right? Uh, you look at mm. Japan, it's been almost 20 years uh, since their monetary policy uh, really created any kind of reaction in the economy. Uh, in the EU, they've had negative rates, uh, you know, probably for, you know, getting on to the, the better part of a decade now. Uh, if low rates generated economic growth, uh, both those countries would be growing faster than the United States. So it says that rates matter, but there's other things that can matter more than rates. And if you use rates for the wrong things, uh, they become less and less effective. And I think this particular cut would be an instance of using rates for the wrong things. And so today, is it safe to say that if they don't cut, the markets will react uh, quite negatively? Uh, I think so, because the cut is all about the financial markets, right? Um, so, you know, I always say, you know, the Fed has two stated mandates, uh, full employment and uh, price stability, but they have this shadow mandate of, uh, you know, financial conditions, you might call it. Right. Um, and people talk about the Powell put. They used to be the Greenspan put. They used to right. be all kinds of other puts. <laughs> uh, so I think that that's, this is the gallery that they're, that they're playing to, right? Right. Um, and, uh, you know, it kind of makes me think there's a, there's a show called Intervention uh, where people who are <laughs> suffering from substance abuse need yeah. their family members to kind of shake them out of it. And, uh, you know, the markets uh, are addicted to rate cuts. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Tendai Kapfizi, he's chief economist at LendingTree on the phone. I'm free. Ah, well done, Paul Brennan. Uh, This story, as we've been talking about, among our most read on the Bloomberg today, about how the shackles on Wall Street are quietly disappearing. Maybe Wall Street saying, I'm free. Michelle Davis is with us to explain exactly, though, what we mean. She's finance reporter at Bloomberg News. She's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. So Wall Street kind of free. What's going on? So this one is a kind of 
you know, interesting one to explain because it's something that was secretly happening that's secretly not happening anymore. <laughs> um, but, you know, it all comes down to a lot of what happens between banks and their regulators is secret. And, and, and that makes sense because we wouldn't want to cause a run on the bank or something like that. Um, but it turns out that actually, you know, before the current administration took over, uh, you know, regulators in their interactions with banks were discouraging them from expanding or uh, kind of more explicit punishments than what we what we saw with Wells Fargo, uh, you know, a couple of years ago. And now uh, these punishments or restrictions have been rolled back just as silently as they were, you know, put forward, all without any change in in actual laws on the books. Well, it is interesting to think about how much the banks didn't do for for a long period of time and you had a number of you know chiefs uh change over i i guess i should say some leave you know new blood uh come in some banks still waiting for a new boss but among those who everyone is watching and i feel like he's the star of this story throughout is jamie diamond uh he wants to do another deal, at least according to your reporting. Right. Tell us he's, about that. He's eyeing his next big one, or he wants to do one more big one before he's done. That, to me, was shocking to see or, or hear that happen because, you know, they yeah, they hadn't been doing anything, and it turns out they actually weren't allowed to, you know, do this big branch expansion that they wanted to yeah. do and, and uh, engage in M&A uh, or even expand in Africa like they wanted to do a few years ago. And now the fact that Diamond, you know, is apparently telling people uh, that he doesn't really think anyone would stand in his way of, of doing things, that's, to me, the epitome of, you know, the banks are free. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, and and who's in the best position to do to do a deal at, at this point, to really get into it? Well, so, you know, obviously the big banks like J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, they are, you know, they can't do any banking mergers because right. they, but by law, if you are, you know, have more than 10% of U.S. deposits, you can't do that. Yeah. But, you know, some of the regional banks people have talked about, but a little, I guess, more nuanced when it comes to the story is that this there were a bunch of banks that wanted to, you know, expand into new markets or even offer new products that, that couldn't while they were in this, you know, informal you know, unwritten Stand penalty still. box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's why it's, you know, if you put all the, you know, puzzle pieces together, you, you step back and you say, oh yeah, that's true. No one, everyone was shutting branches. No one was going into new markets. And now suddenly we have four of the biggest U.S. banks going into, you know, opening up branches in new markets, Bank of America opening 500, JP Morgan, you know, a similar amount. So, so what happened to Dodd-Frank? I mean, it's still there. <laughs> so, so are these different rules beyond Dodd-Frank that regulators, whether it's the Fed or the OCC or whatever, that they're able to well, maneuver? Right. So, and you know, a lot of what Dodd Frank was, uh, you know, require banks to shore up their capital positions. You know, it, it, it imposed stress tests, Volcker rule, that sort of thing. But the, the laws that govern, you know, the bank expansionary activity, those are things that have been on the books for a while. Right. Um, and so, and, and those haven't changed. Um, but what we're seeing is it's, because supervisors, you know, do have a lot of discretion in, in their interactions with, with banks, um, what I've heard is, you know, what I've been told by dozens of people is that, you know, just the, the mere change in tone right. at the regulator 
has paved the way for a lot of these things to happen. Well, and I was just going to say, one, one of the things that's sort of embedded in, in what you said, Carol, was this idea of, you know, the Fed, the OCC, whoever. And part of understanding this, and you do such a great job with this, Michelle, is understanding, like, this is a complex regulatory framework for these guys, too. You know, different parts of the banks are regulated by different pieces. And so if you can, I'll just say it, like, game it correctly, you can sort of figure out a way, especially when they're, you know, kind of stepping back a little bit, it feels well, like. What's funny, too, is that the banks would say, you know, what they, you know, they haven't loosened up. It's still like a minefield. We still have to deal with hundreds of thousands of pages of, you know, regulations. This is not a loosening. It's a return to normalcy, you know, and, and the regulators say, like, nothing's changed yeah. like the laws are the same but right and there are some who argue and you put this in your story that you know banks are in stronger positions so they're able to kind of do more things right right yeah so it's not necessarily a policy shift but it sounds like it's a, things it's are a, rolling it's back it's an attitude shift yeah a change yeah. in receptiveness it's a tone yeah. it's a tone change in tone uh, it's a great story and as Carol mentioned one of the most read yeah. not surprisingly uh, and there's some great color throughout and really some as as Michelle said capturing a lot of the nuances of what happens on Wall Street. These are savvy dealmakers. Well, and you do wonder where these banks are ultimately going to end up, right, as they pursue kind of some other maybe non-traditional banking uh, business lines. I bet he's been walking on some sunshine today. Um, pretty much anyone who is anyone in the media world is gathered in Sun Valley, Idaho right now. That's where the Allen & Co. Sun Valley Media Conference is underway. It's also where our Paul Sweeney is. He's co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance and Bloomberg Markets on Bloomberg Radio. And he joins us now from Sun Valley. Um, Paul, uh, I'm a little jealous, but I'm glad to know that you're you there. You should be. <laughs> <laughs> I can see... Actually, we have a monitor, so I can see the mountains in the backdrop. It's really gorgeous. Do me a favor, though. Give us an idea for our uh, listeners about the backdrop, literally and figuratively, you know, what this event is all about. Yeah, this is the uh, uh, big Allen & Company uh, investor uh, conference where a lot of the big media companies, technology companies, and telecommunications companies gather in Sun Valley, Idaho in July, which is a fantastic location. And they do this every year, and it's one of the biggest conferences of the year because it really brings together uh, all of the big executives uh, of these uh, tech companies, media companies, and they come together every year, and they've been doing it for many, many years. And really the focus is for these executives to learn, to figure out what's the next new thing, the next technology, the next wave in communications. Um, And oftentimes, this is the conference that launches a lot of merger and acquisition activity because when you get two executives sitting down and you know having lunch and you know they start talking about CEO things and one thing leads to another and oftentimes you'll see six or nine months later uh, a deal announced and you'll find out that uh, it was hatched here at the Allen and Company conference. Hey, don't look, uh, but behind you, I think there's a, a gray wolf. <laughs> I do like the yes. idea. <laughs> I like the idea, Paul, that they sit down and they talk about CEO things. Well, like one of the CEO things that's clearly top of mind is technology and its effect on the media world. Uh, We were able to catch up with John Malone, you and the team out there earlier today. Here's what he had to say. They've changed the world and they're the disruptors now. We were disruptors in our our youth. Now they're the disruptors. We have to figure out how to position ourselves to adapt to the changing world that they're changing. Uh, You're not going to fight them. So you better you better accept them as a as a fact, and then adjust your your uh, positioning. 
Well, that is almost a uh, subdued John Malone yeah. talking about disruption yeah. uh, and the reaction. I mean, is, does that capture sort of the mood of the more traditional media companies at this point? I think it really does. Uh, I mean, you, you come here and you look at the CEOs that have gathered here. It's, it's a mix of the traditional media companies, newspapers, television companies, uh, cable TV companies, and the big entertainment companies, along with the technology companies uh, that are coming out of Silicon Valley and some of the emerging technologies. Uh, and they all gather together, and they're, I think, exchanging a lot of notes and, and seeing how perhaps they can work together, where there might be some threats and opportunities. Um, but as John Malone said, um, I think the traditional media companies have said, we need to get bigger, we need to get more technology-driven to compete against not just each other, um, but against some of these big technology companies like a Google, like a Facebook, like an Amazon. Uh, and we're starting to see media companies really adjust their strategy. So, for example, uh, the greatest example would probably be the Walt Disney Company buying 21st Century Fox. Uh, they recognized the Disney Company that they needed to get more scale, more programming, so they could go direct to the consumer and try to compete against the Netflix of the world. Yeah, and of course, John Malone, chairman of Liberty Media, I mean, you know, the go-to guy when it comes to the cable industry for, for many, many decades. You know, it's interesting. I was reading something, uh, Paul, I think it was in Variety, and they just talk about in Sun Valley this year, it's the content arms race and that the streaming wars are taking center stage. And I do, you know, wonder, you know, how things have changed in terms of the landscape when, you know, we talk so much about Netflix and Hulu and Amazon and, you know, all of those players uh, and everybody kind of watching what they're doing. Yeah, exactly right. Um, just to put a number on it, there's uh, on air this year almost 500 scripted television shows. And you, mm. you rewind to maybe seven or ten years ago, and that number is about 250. So there's a lot more demand for content. Uh, there's content's a lot more valuable than it's ever been because there are more distributors. There are Netflix of the world and Hulu's and just streaming over the Internet. So what the media companies and the content creators here are talking about is how do we maximize the value of our content? Historically, i.e. over the last five or six years, they would license that content for cash to the Netflix of the world. Now they're bringing that content back in-house and saying, gee, we need to create our own streaming service uh, with our own content. So they're bringing the content back um, from Netflix and Hulu and others, and they're creating their own streaming services. So AT&T, Comcast, uh, it just seems like every company you talk to, NBC Universal, they're all talking about and, and in fact, launching their own streaming content services with their own content uh, in an effort to try to, uh, you know, attract eyeballs and consumers. You know, one thing that's cool about Sun Valley is I feel like, Paul, it's it's notable for who is there. It's also sometimes notable for who, who isn't. And I'm not sure if this is correct, but I had read something, too, that CBS and Viacom, they're not there. I just wonder, they're, you know, folks that aren't there that are kind of, you know, it's noticeable. Yeah, it's interesting. We, we did not see uh, the executives from Viacom um, or CBS here, but Sherry Redstone, uh, it, who is a controlling shareholder mm -hmm. of both companies, she is here. And I'm sure that obviously the talk around her investment in both Viacom and CBS is when are you finally going to put these two companies together and, and, and create a, a, and recombine them? Um, so there's definitely that's probably the number one speculated uh, media deal um, in this on the street right now. So she is here and I'm sure the Allen and Company bankers are talking to her about, you know, possibly getting some kind of deal done. And so when you look at the sort of the streaming wars, just going back to that for a second, Paul, who's winning? Well, clearly Netflix is the dominant winner so far. They were first to market. They have that great brand in the marketplace. Uh, they have over 150 million subscribers globally. But there are other companies. Hulu is out there, and uh, Disney is a majority holder of Hulu. Uh, so they're out there, and they have you know over 25 million U.S. subscribers, and they are growing. 
And I think what the market's really waiting to see is what Disney Plus will look like. That's going to be the streaming service from Disney that'll launch later this year. And boy, you think about the great content they have with Marvel and Star Wars and now the 21st Century Fox content. So you think, boy, they have got some of the best content in the world. Uh, They clearly should be a winner. Um, And I think most investors that that own Disney stock feel pretty good that they will be able to compete against Netflix and the other players. Paul, any conversations on the sideline that, you know, maybe has get people talking? Because I just think about, you know, all the deals that have ultimately come out of Sun Valley, uh, you know, Comcast and GE's, you know, huddling, I think, back in 2009, you know, that led to Comcast yep. buying NBCU, Amazon, uh, Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post and, you know, deal talk, I think, initiated there. Just got about 30 seconds. Anything that uh, anybody's talking about? I think the big thing is, will any of the technology companies that are here, you know, Jeff Bezos is here, you mentioned, will the big technology companies, will will they really jump in the deep end of the media and content pool and make a big acquisition? That's what everybody's waiting for. Uh, So maybe something will get sparked here. All right. Paul Sweeney, he's the co-host of Bloomberg Surveillance and Bloomberg Markets doing, you know, he deserves combat pay for this. He's joining us on the phone from the Allen & Co. conference out in Sun Valley, Idaho. I would never say boondog. No, I would never say that either. (laughs) He looks so happy. He does. He really, he is totally in his element. That was such a great conversation. How much does it cost? Yeah, how much does an actual stock certificate of Lehman Brothers, Bear Stearns, or Countrywide Financial, how much does it cost? Because you know what, Jason? They're around. They are around, (laughs) even though you can't buy them on the open market. You can't buy the actual shares, but the certificates, apparently you can pick them up. Although, you got to have some cash. You do have to have some cash. This story in the finance section of the magazine this week, also online and on the Bloomberg. Joining us with more, Pat Regnier, Markets and Finance Editor at Bloomberg Business Week, along with Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business week editor, uh, both in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Jason and I were lucky we caught up with Mike Regan, who wrote this story. I love this story, Pat. Lead of the week. Yeah. For the is. record. It's so, I should it? have bought more Lehman. It's not something you hear every day. <laughs> Say what? Wait, what? Exactly. Because <laughs> Lehman, as we know, doesn't exist anymore. But Pat, we're talking about actual stock certificates from when Lehman did exist. Right. These are the uh, f- uh, f- suitable for framing uh, pieces of paper that look a lot like money. There's a relatively robust collector's market for these things. And um, uh, people who read Business Week will learn a new vocabulary word, uh, which is scrupophily. Uh, and people who Jason collect these things are scrupophilous. Yeah, yeah, practicing. Practicing. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. Anyway, if you are a scrupophilous and I've mispronounced that, please uh, <laughs> we will hear tell it you. to Twitter. No doubt. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's interesting. And what's fun about this story is the worse the situation financial system uh, or company was or the more defunct a company was, the more, I guess, the more valuable that these share certificates are. That's right. And, and then some of the ones that we show here on page, we've got uh, the Trump uh, casinos. The art on that is amazing. It His really is. Head sort of above the, uh, sort of levitating above the boardwalk uh, in, in Atlantic City. And it, Not, totally, the head of Donald Trump. The head of Donald Trump. Lehman, yeah. we have the Taj Mahal, Trump, uh, Trump property, mm. uh, Washington Mutual, and then Enron. And, and then Enron. Yeah. So, uh, you know, all these things. I think people who are in, into the markets are kind of fascinated with failures. Often they've had a close brush with it themselves. And uh, these things can be 
like markers of a moment in their lives. I think, you know, I think all of us who are in financial markets or cover it, you know, we always remember where we were when we heard yes. something like that happen. It's kind of the same impulse. Having this piece of paper is like, you know, remember that this, remember that this happened. Um, piece of history. Uh, so memento right. mori of the financial market. And these yeah. things went for like a dollar a piece and were afterthoughts when these companies were going. It's after the fact well, that they become And some of them were actually meant to be destroyed. I mean, yeah. I think legally they were supposed to like be binned literally and yeah. you know, but some people either tucked them away on purpose or like they got stuck in a file. Are you one of those people? Would you have tucked it away? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Absolutely. Right. right. So who who's collecting these? Who's and who's the guy with the website where you can get these? Well, so there's a there, there's a guy named Bob Kirstein who uh, does a lot of the collecting, and he's at scripophily dot com uh, and and scripophily dot net. That was available. <laughs> <laughs> he, he managed to get both the dot com and the dot net. Uh, uh, and uh, you know, so so he's. He's, uh, you know, and uh, the the website's fun because often there are like little uh, capsule stories of what exactly happened to this. And again, I think that speaks to, yeah. you know, uh, the fact that there there are people who have. Uh, you know, a historical interest in, in these things. Well, and Joel, one of the things that Mike Regan pointed out to us is, you know, you sort of go into this thinking like, this is a bunch of like old codgers who are like hanging these up on the wall. But when this story went out, Mike was telling us that, you know, he had all these millennials like tweeting yeah. him. They're like walls of uh, either shame or infamy of all these stocks and bond certificates. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, I think there's just this thing with collectibles, right? And, there, and when you think about finance, it's not like there's a lot of collectible things, right? right. Yeah. So right. the fact that you can, like, mark a moment, however bad it might look in hindsight, with a physical thing, yeah. I think there's definitely some humor to it. In this ethereal world. But it is not the only thing that's actually in the finance section this week. So as long as we've got Pat here, yeah. I just wanted to talk about what else we, Dive in. we have. Well, I mean, the theme that we're covering like crazy, and I think we'll continue to cover, is uh, this low-rate world um, and the ways that it's kind of you know shaping markets in surprising ways. We have this really interesting story out of Tokyo about the uh, postal savings bank attached yeah. to the Japanese uh, post office, um, and how you know they have become you know an important player on global bond markets because they're they can't get any yield buying Japanese bonds, so they have to go out. In you know, in, into foreign markets, including into things like collateralized loan obligations. The other big player there is a bank that is a, co- a cooperative for uh, farmers and fishermen in Japan. And you think about this, though, it's, you know, the postal service, as we report in here, the Japanese postal service, for 100 years, they basically been this maiden state institution where, without a doubt, you could just lock your money up and you were going to get a return. But they... Don't have that luxury anymore because where where they turn to has zero percent, right? And this is turning out to be a generational story. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking about is oh, uh, five years ago I wrote a story about how two percent explains the world, and it was about that that uh, you know two, the two percent ten year yield on a treasury was such a remarkable thing, and yeah. it was reshaping everything. And I checked I checked bond yields every day for about a year after that to make sure that I didn't like put a tombstone on that moment. And right. where are bond yields right now? They're about two percent. Yeah. Amazing. It's pretty remarkable, right? This environment and that it sustained itself uh, for so long. But that also means something else we have in this section that thing, bond funds are getting a little edgier because right. of it. 
That's yeah. right. I mean, you, you see that all over the place. That like even the most plain vanilla bond funds are in lots of different. I had stuff. a nickel for every time I heard someone say bond funds are getting edgier. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You'd have a lot of business week on this. Exactly. All, all right. right, Pat Regnier is markets and finance editor for Bloomberg Business Week. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Thank you both so much. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday. Back with us is John Trainer, Chief Investment Officer at People's United Wealth Management. Roughly $9 billion in assets under a manager based in Bridgeport, Connecticut, uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Nice to have you back with us. Nice to be back. Thank you. Very different environment. Uh, absolutely. You were reminding absolutely. us it was yes. back in December, late yes. December, when like the market, the equity market certainly was coming undone. We were about 5,000 points higher than when I was here last time. It's amazing. Amazing. Right. So what happened? What happened in the intervening time? You know, the the news on the economy really didn't change that dramatically. It was investors' perceptions. Number one, of, of the Fed. I think, I think you know, uh, Powell has gotten his communication uh, strategy down. He's doing a much better job. And the economic numbers have come in. They've come in good, but not so strong to scare people. And then inflation. Inflation is the amazing uh, uh, mystery yeah. out here that, you know, we've got the PCE the last, uh, last 12 months, 1.5%. That's incredible. Incredible at How this point. How do you point. explain it? How do you explain it th- at this point in the cycle? You Longest know, expansion on record, right? It's not only the PCE, it's wage inflation. I mean, think about that. Think yeah. of, look at where the unemployment rate is, and we're only looking at a little over 3%. And we were, we were communicating very clearly to clients, when you got to 3.5%, that's when we get into the danger zone. That's when the Fed starts to get nervous. We hit 3.4%. We came right back down again. So the wage inflation side is very confusing to us. You know, individuals are evidently not pushing for wages. They're very happy they have a job. Um, and that's flowing through, we really think, on the, on the employment side and, and the inflation side, the PCE. And so, you know, you mentioned uh, Chair Powell. He spent several hours up on Capitol Hill today, several hours more coming tomorrow. You talked about his communication style. There was some interesting back and forth that he had with some, some lawmakers. What were the highlights for you? You know, one of the things that really stood out to us was he was being questioned by politicians. They're in charge of fiscal policy, you know, getting infrastructure spending going, all sorts of things that, that really, you know, if, if the Fed has a, has a ball-peen hammer, the, the fiscal policy is a sledgehammer. Yeah. And that should really be where the heavy lifting is going. And a lot of the politicians were basically saying, hey, Fed, what are you doing? What are you going to do? He pushed back a little bit, which I was very glad to see. And even Draghi and the ECB has done the same thing, pushed back on the politicians and said— that's a movie we've seen before with Janet Yellen, with Ben Bernanke, where, you know, the Fed is kind of like, we've done what we can do, folks. It's up to you policymakers. It it really goes back to the Greenspan put, that the Fed is always going to be there to bail you out. And if there was a disappointment, uh, you know, we now have the Powell put. And it, we reinforce that message that the Fed will always be there. It would be great if there was a little more give and take. John, is this a market that continues to trend higher, grind higher 
equity market. Dave Wilson had an interesting chart and has been looking at where you've seen these kinds of gains in the first half and what it means for the second half, yep. and you tend to see underperformance. But I am just curious how you see it. We, we see it moving higher. We're, we're, we're actually, from an asset allocation standpoint, we're actually slightly overweight equities, underweight bonds. We think equities are where you want to be. Uh, if you take a look at the charts, once the Fed cuts rates at this point, you're generally going to get at least another six months of, of good returns. What concerns us is that this is a purely valuation-driven market. Mm. This is a rising P.E. market. We, I would love to see earnings rebound, but we're not, we don't have great expectations this year. Hopefully, we'll start to see them next year. But you know, lower rates are allowing you know, the P.E. multiple to expand. Right. We'd rather see it be earnings-driven. I was looking at some notes you sent over, and one of the areas that you like from a sector perspective is cloud computing. We talked a little bit about this yesterday with the closing of the Red Hat acquisition by IBM. Obviously, a big bet by IBM that that's where the future is going. Hard to argue, given the success of Microsoft and Amazon, especially, and and Google for that uh, matter. What do you like there in cloud? You know, the, the largest holding that we have in our model portfolios right now is Microsoft. And I will tell you that we own that when, when there was a lot of skepticism yeah. around Microsoft's yeah. cloud strategy. We're very pleased with how that's gone. So our largest they have cloud. They ramped up from coming, I feel like, safe to say, behind, right? Oh, to ramping they, up their cloud strategy. They were way behind. Yeah. It was really, I'd say, just a, a phenomenal management move on their part. And it was, you know, a little tough for us. We had a few years of, of no performance from Microsoft, and it's really been a great holding for mm. us. But but Microsoft is, is without a doubt our number one holding in that area right now. And how much does something like that conviction on cloud computing, computing, excuse me, mm-hmm. sort of rely on continued heavy enterprise spending, continued yeah. investment from big corporate customers? Yeah. If you look at, at corporate capital spending, you know the, the disappointment is we're not seeing a lot of plant and equipment. We're not seeing new buildings go up, but where companies are spending, they're spending on technology, mm. which is is sort of the easier spend to make. You know, you're you're not committing to a huge new facility, and you're 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 investing in productivity. You're investing in your employees very often when you're investing in technology. So we see that as as a great investment. We'd love to see a broadening of that capital spending, but just seeing the technology spending is very encouraging. What else is in your model portfolio in terms of the equity allocation? Is is there a consumer play? It, there are there are consumers. Uh, you know, we like we like Disney right now, mm-hmm. and we we've got more of an exposure. I'd say more of an exposure to the consumer cyclicals, not as much of the consumer staples. And in our portfolio, what what has worked out very well for us is that we're erring on the side of growth in the portfolio rather than some of the value names. Huh. We have haven't felt that the economy is going to be that strong to really get a lot of the cyclicals moving. So we're, we're erring on the side of companies that, are, that have, are showing good revenue growth, that they have a little more ability to generate organic growth. That's the key. We don't think the economy is going to be so strong that you want to go out and load up on some deep cyclical stocks right now. Interesting, so, too, to think about Disney. We were just catching up with one of our colleagues who's out in Sun Valley. I'm looking over here because that's the, our shot of Silicon of Sun Valley. Excuse me. Um, you know, Disney, a huge bet that seems to be paying off on streaming. Yeah, uh, or, yeah. You know, a lot of eyes on that. We, we we originally liked Disney because you know whether you get your whether your, your kids get the Disney Channel through the uh, cable or over the air or whatever it is you you want the content mm-hmm. so Disney for us was always a great content play and then they shifted and said okay we do need to own the pipeline and they're making a great a great move in that direction yeah. what's the risk to this environment right now. The risk to this environment when we sit down with clients we've got a, ver- a lot of fully invested bears. 
We've got a lot of very nervous people, but when you take a look at their portfolios, they are fully invested. Yeah. So it's a, it's a real dichotomy right now. I would, I would think that when we saw the market pull back in May that I would have had all, my phone would have been off the hook. Not at all. Right. Not at all. People were, were calm. So I'd actually like to see a little bit more nervousness on right. the part of clients. Yeah. The fact that I'm not seeing it, that makes me nervous. Yeah, their lack of nervousness makes you nervous. Uh, correct. Right. Correct. Well, that's, that's why you're a good manager. All right, John <laughs> Trainer, Chief Investment Officer of People's United Wealth Management. They receive about $9 billion. He's based up in Bridgeport here with us in New York City today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every Every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.